Thank you, Susan. And uh, we're in the book of 1 Samuel, as you've heard already, and at chapter 21. If you're using a pew Bible, that's on page 293. And in just a moment, we'll turn over and pick up some verses from uh, chapter 22. But uh, 1 Samuel 21... And the first nine verses. David went to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? David answered Ahimelech the priest, The king charged me with a certain matter and said to me, No one is to know anything about your mission and your instructions. As for my men, I have told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what have you to hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever you can find. But the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread to hand, however there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. David replied, Indeed, women have kept themselves from us, as usual whenever I set out. The men's things are holy, even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, And since there was no other bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day, it was taken away. Now one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doeg the Edomite, Saul's head shepherd. David asked Ahimelech, don't you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's business was urgent. The priest replied, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Eli, is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There is no sword here but that one. David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. And uh, then we move on to chapter 22, same page, 294, uh, the bottom right-hand corner, starting at verse 6. Now Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered, and Saul's spear in hand was seated under the tamarisk tree on the hill at Gibeah, with all his officials standing round him. Saul said to them, Listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give give all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why you have all conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie and wait for me, as he does today. But Doeg, the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials, said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitab, at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent for the priest Ahimelech, son of Hatab, and his father's whole family, who were the priests at Nob, and they all came to the king. Saul said, Listen now, son of Hatab. Yes, my lord, he answered. Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him, so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today? Himelech answered the king, Who of all your servants is as loyal as David, the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard and highly respected in your household? 
Was that day the first day I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Let the king accuse, let not the king accuse your servant or any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. But the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and your father's whole family. Then the king ordered the guards at his side, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me. But the king's officials were not willing to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. The king then ordered Doeg, You turn and strike down the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He also put to to the sword Nob, the town of the priests, with its men and women, its children and infants, its cattle, donkeys and sheep. But Abitha, son of Ahimelech, son of Ahitab, escaped and fled to join David. He told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Ahitab, This day, when Doeg the Edomite was there, that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I am responsible for the death of your father's whole family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The Lord who is seeking, the man who is seeking your life, is seeking mine also. You will be safe with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Nigel. Good evening, everybody. Welcome. Uh, can I have my welcome to that, Susan? It's, uh, it's great to be with you um, this evening. Um, please do keep that uh, passage open as we'll look at it together. But let's just begin with a, a prayer. God, our Father, we um, thank you that we are safe with your King, King Jesus. And we pray now as we look at your word that you'll help us to understand more of you and more of your son Jesus. We pray that your spirit be at work amongst us, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I wonder if you can guess who the the poet is uh, for these words. Two roads diverge in a wood, and I I took the one less travelled by, and that has made all the difference. Anyone know the American poets? No? Somebody said it down here. Robert Frost. Well done. I should have a prize, shouldn't I, to be able to battle that too. Yes, Robert Frost. Two roads diverge in the wood, and I took the one less travelled by, and that has made all the difference. A sense of choice in that um, poem that we all face sometimes, a choice. Which way are we going to choose? And the choices we make make all the difference, don't they? And very difficult choice faced um, the people of God 3,000 um, years ago. There was effectively, at that time, two um, kings. Saul, the king who was on the throne, with all uh, his uh, splendor and all his uh, things that he had with him that come with royalty. And then there is David, an anointed king, but he's not king yet, And he is God's chosen king, but he's also on the run. He's a bit of a fugitive. Not what we expect of the man who had killed Goliath and defeated the Philistine. And of course, we had, uh, as Susan helped us, Saul became very jealous of David and hated the fact that people loved him more than they loved Saul. 
And that's where we pick up this story here in our chapter 21. As David goes from place to place, like a fugitive, and the people he meets, all the different people he meets along his way, have a choice to make, a choice. Uh, Will they dob him in and back King Saul, or will they make a stand, make a stand for the king who's on the run? It's a choice. And it's actually a choice that we all face. It's a choice that we face day by day that has profound consequences, that makes all the difference, as Frost would say. And when we read about David, the Bible makes the link very clear to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the New Testament begins in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David. And of course, next month, we'll hear a lot about that at Christmas. You see, David is the the forerunner of Jesus. He's the forerunner. He's God's chosen anointed king. And so the patterns in David's life we see fulfilled in the life of King Jesus. He too is despised and rejected by men. He has to move, doesn't he? Moves from place to place. He is uh, on the run from the religious leaders uh, by seemingly more impressive people. We have Herod and then you have Pilate and you have the Pharisees. He looks weak, doesn't he? And so, too, we have to face the choice. Will we follow the king that seems to rule the roost, the one in power, or will we follow the king who, who is, is on the run? You see, the New Testament makes it clear that in every age, in every time, that there is something called the Antichrist. If you think about it, Christ means anointed one, doesn't it? It means anointed one. David is a Christ, isn't he? He's an anointed one. And the Lord Jesus is the Christ. He's the supreme anointed one, God's son. And in each generation, in each time, has its own anti-Christs, powers, authorities that resist God's anointed king. And the Bible tells us at the end of time, There will be, of course, the worst manifestations of the Antichrist, fierce opposition to Jesus, not only in each generation, though, significantly, but also in our own situations, in our own lives. Often we don't realise that. We will, uh, will we back Christ or will we back Antichrists, his rivals? Now, I wonder whether you've made that choice for yourself. This morning, are you continuing to make that choice each day? And that's what this story is about. Let's have a look at the the first uh, lead, David, the two kings that we were alluding to. The first king is David there, who is the king on the run. He's anointed, but he's not uh, in power, as it were. Saul wants to kill David, and so he, he flees. It's a desperate situation. He arrives at Nob an important spiritual place, lots of priests. It's a logical choice for him to go there. Verse 1, Ahimelech, the priest, trembles when he meets him. Why is he trembling? He knows, I suspect, that something is not right. 
something's not right. Perhaps rumours have spread out. He asks, why are you alone? Ahimelech realises there's a whole odd situation going on here. David, remember, was married to the daughter of Saul. Um, He ate at the the king's table. Um, And therefore, he's thinking, where's his entourage? You know, where is the, where is the guards, the, the PA and the, the civil servants? You know, he's one of these important people that rides at the heart of government and power. And so David tries to deflect it by saying he's on a secret mission. I'm on a secret mission. If Ahimelech is suspicious, his concerns are raised because David now asks for food. Well, surely, King Saul would have sent somebody on a secret mission with some food. And then Ahimelech realizes that he's unarmed. And David again deflects the whole situation. Said, oh, I had to leave in a hurry. But, but surely the stakes are, are high in a, a secret mission, you know, that uh, MI6 would have given him all the latest gizmos and Q would have sorted him out if he's on a secret mission. It doesn't stack up, does it? And so Ahimelech has a choice. Here's, here's somebody, one of those people, who has a choice. Ahimelech has a choice. Does he, does he let it go and support David? The, or, although it doesn't necessarily make sense or add, add up, he knows that Samuel has anointed him, uh, uh, David, as king and potentially risk the wrath of Saul. Or does he just hand him in? Ahimelech makes his choice. He provides food. He gives him a weapon, Goliath's sword, no less. But David is on the run, isn't he? David is on the run from Saul, and he knows that Saul will come to Nob. And so he gets out of there, and he leaves. Things were bad. Where do you think he goes next? We didn't have it read. It was the bit that we missed out. He goes to Gath. Does anyone know where Gath was? Well, Gath is the home of the Philistine king. I mean, you can imagine seeing... Um, David arrive at Gath, can't you? The man who's killed um, Goliath, and he's carrying Goliath's sword, and he arrives at the town of the Philistines. I mean, talk about going a frying pan into the fire. Talk about being provocative. And what does he do? He feigns insanity. Go back and have a look at it sometime. The king is fooled, and he sends him away. It is truly a miracle. He got out of there alive, isn't it? On the run, he goes next to the cave at Adullam. Again, it was at the beginning of chapter 22. We didn't have read. A damp, dark cave. Not the sort of place an anointed king would be found. Alone, initially, but not for long. His family come. And then in verse 2, it says, All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered round him and he became their leader. A motley crew of the disaffected, the outcast, the weak, the vulnerable, the disconnected, the disheartened. Those looking for a leader, a true leader, a true king. From there he moves to Mizpah and the land of Moab. And you can imagine he must have been constantly on the run with these kind of rabble followers. He's a desperate tiring, weary, 
situation and frightening, no less. And verse 5 tells us that the prophet Gad then tells him to go back to Judah and he arrives there at the forest of Hereth. And when Samuel anointed him as king, you can imagine what David was thinking. Do you think he was thinking this is what it's going to be like? You know, life on the run, not knowing where the next bed is going to be, not knowing the next meal is going to come from. That it would come, that his taking the throne would come through suffering. Who would have, he wouldn't have thought that, would he? He would come, his glory, he was going to enter his glory, but he was going to take the throne, but through suffering, through pain. David's the anointed king who's on the run, but let's just take a moment to look at Saul, who's the king on the throne for a moment. David is a, a Christ anointed one, then Saul, the king on the throne, is an antichrist. Chapter 22, verse 6 begins, Now Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered, and Saul, spear in hand, was seated under a tamarisk tree on a hill at Gibeah, with all his officials standing around him. David is hiding in the forest, trying to be kept unseen, Saul is on a hill, probably this tree is a landmark, he's up there, he's, you know, he's the one in power, he's showing off to everybody below. Saul looks secure, looks like nothing can hurt him. He looks in charge, spear in hand, and yet he's totally paranoid. But not without reason. Jonathan if you remember previously, do go back and have a look at it. Jonathan has, been, has made a promise to David. He's made a promise to David, a covenant. He made his choice. Another person who's made his choice to follow God's anointed king instead of his own father. Even those around Saul, the officials, uh, uh, are suspected of working against him. Maybe, maybe not. But one man here in the story that we had read wants to show his loyalty to Saul. And he's made a choice as well. His name is Doag. Doag. Doag the Edomite, verse 9, who was standing with Saul's official said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech. He inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave his, uh, him provisions and the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. He's dobbed him in, hasn't he? That's... He's made his choice who he's going to follow, which road he's going to take. Doeg, you see, was back there in chapter 21, verse 7, when David came to a Himalek um, earlier. And the writer, you see, is so skillful. Um, it's like a movie scene, isn't it? Panning from one uh, scene to another, catching the, the moment of one uh, individual. Why is Doag there in chapter 21? And why is that being referred to? Ah, we see, don't we, in chapter 22. Doag is in the wings. We're meant to notice. We're meant to see the choice that Doeg makes. And Ahimelech had a choice, and he backed David. He said nothing, knowing the consequences were great. And Doeg had the same choice. He backed the king on the throne, 
What was in it for Doag? Prestige? Status? Want to show off to the boss? What a great guy he, he is. Who knows exactly? Despite Ahimelech and the priest's defense, Saul orders their death. David had never shown any aggression towards Saul. Not once had he sought to, to take the throne by force. And yet Saul has none of it. None of his officials are willing to put the priests of the Lord to death. For good reasons. They're the priests of the Lord, aren't they? But Doeg, he has no qualms about doing it. He takes the sword and he massacres 84 priests. And then he doesn't stop there. He goes to Nob and he kills all the men, women and children. It's a horrific scene. What's going on? What's going on? Saul is effectively declaring war on the priests of the Lord. And therefore, he's declaring war on God, isn't he? Effectively. Isn't that what an antichrist does? Horrific. Two kings. Which will we follow? One on the run, looks weak and and kind of miserable, but is righteous, seeking to do the right thing. The other looks powerful, but is wicked. Jesus Christ or the Antichrist? The Antichrist doesn't have to have, you see, a forked tail and horns and, you know, go around with a cape or anything, um, or look particularly wicked. Antichrists are anything, you see, that rivals Christ Jesus. Anything. Whether overtly or subtly. And that is the choice that we face, to follow Jesus. And that's a day-by-day decision that we make. Will I go the way of Jesus or will I follow a rival, whatever it looks like and whatever form it comes in? Let's just think about the as we work towards the close, the the kind of application. What does this mean for us? Well, number one, it's really important that we don't judge by appearances, isn't it? That's an an obvious one. Don't judge by appearances. If you do judge by appearances, you will finish up following the king on the throne, won't you? On outward appearance. Remember when David was anointed by Samuel in chapter 16, it says, The Lord does not look at the things man looks at, but man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart, looks at what's inside. Saul was impressive, wasn't he? Uh, 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 he was tall, but the Lord looks with the heart, and he chose David. And if we're, t- to, if we're wise too, we will do the same. We will choose David, the Lord's chosen. We'll choose the anointed, King Jesus. So although Saul looks powerful outwardly uh, and he looks in control and he's desperately trying to kill David and yet David looks weak and vulnerable and he's yet the Lord at every turn and every place where he's on the run, we notice, don't we, his, his protection. Sometimes it's miraculous. How did he get out of Gath? He's in some very odd places, 
with some very odd people and the Lord is in control and he protects. So don't judge by outward appearances. Jesus, you see, uh, if we think about Jesus on the cross, looked weak, looked vulnerable and desperate. And where did power look like it was placed? With, with Pilate, didn't it? With, with the religious leaders. You see, I think we're, we're quite programmed, kind of hot-wired. Hot Is that the right word? Hardwired, that's the right phrase. Hardwired and programmed to look to the important people, people in position. And if we look to them, we say we'll get along in life, that life will work out. You see, to actually back Jesus and to choose Jesus in the 21st century, to say I follow a crucified saviour, you see, looks foolish on the outside, doesn't it? Not the way to get along in life. We risk, you risk things. You, you risk being ridiculed. You risk being overlooked. You, you risk friendships and family. In school or college or in work, wherever it might be, because there's a sense of losing credibility and you risk kind of derision. For many of us to live day by day, we tend to live in that, as Christians, at kind of in a compromised state, don't we? We want to follow Christ, but we also want to fit in. But to be a Christian, to be a Christian when it suits us, we kind of think. Other powers, other rivals look more important. People, you see, we think could sideline us at work or, or push us out of a friendship group. Those are the kings, if you like, on the throne for us. We think we don't want to miss out. I don't know, maybe you find that with friends and family or, and colleagues. The king on the throne it, it is the kind of peer pressure to fit in so you know we do things that fit in we we gossip we use bad language or something in those moments we're setting aside king jesus because he looks very weak and of course in some countries the king on the throne might be a cruel dictator an anti-christ government if you like where following jesus openly would mean imprisonment or worse So we mustn't judge by appearances. Jesus Christ was rejected, despised, beaten and crucified. But secondly, with all that, let's keep our eyes firmly fixed on the future, on the future glory. Most of the time we think about the here and now, don't we? We're focused on the next meal, the next job, the next uh, situation The outcome of 1 Samuel, though, is not in doubt. You can read ahead. When David runs into Jonathan for the last time in the next chapter, in chapter 23, Jonathan says to David in verse 17, Don't be afraid. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You shall be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father knows it. The outcome is not in doubt. Those who trust in the Lord and the Lord Jesus will be vindicated. The outcome is not in doubt. At the final judgment, there will only be one king on the throne. 
The dictator, the, the government, won't be on the throne. Your boss or the, or, or the person you work for won't be on the throne. Um, your peers that you long to be popular with and to impress, they won't be on the, the throne. The only person who will be on the throne is Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords. For when Jesus suffered and rose again, and he's seated on the throne on high. So keep our eyes fixed on the future. And then finally, we do have to remember, as we fix our eyes on the future, that it won't be easy. We've already alluded to that. It won't be easy. When, when we back Jesus, Christ, we're following in the way of the king, rejected by many. And yes, that will be the case for us. We'll be kind of like that rabble army that, and followers who in the cave at Agilent, won't we? We're, we will be following him. Outcasts, misfits, the discontented, those in debt who found a true leader, someone who can fulfill them. And yet it won't be easy. It won't be easy. Think about the people in, who made decisions to follow Christ, the anointed one, David. Think of Ahimelech. He was killed. The priests were killed. Think of Jonathan, who backed David. He must have been in constant conflict within his family and with his father. That must have been a very difficult situation. Maybe that's a situation for you if you've decided to follow Jesus that you're in conflict within the family situation. To follow Christ means a new loyalty that puts pressure on all other previous loyalties, whether it's in the home or whether it's at work with your boss or with your, even with your children or with your family. Jesus says, if you follow me, you have to go the way I travel. It's, and what's the way that he travelled? He travelled the way of the cross, from place to place, moving around. He had to suffer. Yes, there's a wonderful future. Do not forget that. There's a wonderful future. But the wait can be a long time. And what is true for Christ is true for his followers. If you want to follow me, you must take up your cross and follow me. Mark 8, Jesus said. Are we ready for that? Are you ready for that? Am I ready to take up my cross and follow? What does it mean to take up your cross? It means to deny yourself, doesn't it? It means to be a minority. It means to be potentially laughed at and mocked at to be despised for the beliefs and the views and the values that God has. That is the road to life, though, isn't it? Two roads, two kings, two roads that diverge in a wood. And I, I took the one less travelled by, and that has made all the difference. Will you take the road less travelled by? Will you take it? 
And will it make all the difference? Because it makes all the difference. Let's pray. God, our Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for what you reveal about who you are and about your son, Jesus. Father, we pray for this choice that we all face day by day to follow you. Help us to follow the king on the run, who is the true Christ, who now is resurrected and sits with you on high. Help us day by day to do that. Whatever that looks like in each of our different situations, we pray that you show us. Help us to choose the road less travelled by so that it makes all the difference. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.